me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. Last week, I released episode 29, which featured my interview with the legendary John Zazula, who signed to Metallica to his own Megaforce Records. And now, in episode 30, the Metallica story continues with my interview of the legendary A&R executive who signed Metallica to a major label, Electra Records, Mr. Michael Alago. And while there are plenty of great Metallica stories in this interview, we go even more in depth about his life and career because he is just filled with so many amazing stories. And he's worked with many other bands. There's a reason why he was called that metal guy at Electro Records, and you're going to hear about that and more. But at the conclusion of this interview, if you're like, I still want to know more about this guy because he sounds awesome and he's filled with amazing stories, well, please click on the link in the episode description. Go to Amazon and buy his book titled I Am Michael Lago, Breathing Music, Sighting Metallica, Beating Death. It is out now and ready for you to purchase. And I will say, I have read it. It is fantastic. I also want to thank MetalTalk.net for the opportunity to interview Michael. For those of you who may not know, I've written two articles for Metal Talk. The first one was about the historic 1985 Day on the Green performance with Metallica. And the second one was about their performance at Download 2004, which to date is still the one and only show Lars Ulrich has missed. If you've not read those articles and you care to, again, there is a link in the episode description for both of those. And you're also going to see a third Metal Talk link. This one to the video interview that I conducted originally with Michael Lago for Metal Talk TV. This is the audio from that interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, my name is Brandon and welcome to Metal Talk TV. I am joined today with a special guest who I'm very excited to talk with. He is the former A&R executive who signed Metallica to Electra Records. He, he has also worked with many other legendary artists from White Zombie to Cindy Lauper to the Misfits to Nina Simone and many, many more. His book, I Am Michael Lago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death is out now wherever books are sold. Michael, welcome to Metal Talk TV. Oh, thank you so much, Brandon, for having me. I'm glad to be here. It is a real pleasure to get to speak uh, to get to speak to you. Um, over the last 48 hours, I have binged as much of your book as possible, as much as my eight-month-old daughter allows me to. Sure. <laughs> um, I have really enjoyed it. It's really well done. It's filled with great stories for a music lover like myself, um, and. You really do not hold back for the reader. It really chronicles all your ups, all your downs. It's a really great read. I'm curious how this project came to be. Was the book something you were approached about doing? Was this something um, that was your brainchild? Um, the book came to be because uh, this little company called Backbeat Books saw my film on Netflix called Who the F is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. It's been on Netflix a little over two years now. They saw it, they liked it, and they wanted to know if I had more stories. So uh, being in the music business professionally for 25 years, of course I had more stories. What do they think? <laughs> so I said yes, and uh, they said, let's do, let's do a book deal. So um, that's really how it came about. 
but I have a bit of a scatterbrain, and sometimes my, uh, my, my attention ain't so good. So uh, I don't know how I knew this, but from a very early age, I kept journals. And like at 14 and 15 years old, those journals were not like creative writing or poetry, but you know, I just knew to list taking the B train from Brooklyn to the city, going to three nights of the dead boys and the damned at CBGB. I mean, I just made these lists for so long. So I knew I didn't have the, um, what's the word? Uh, I, I wasn't gonna be able to just focus and do this on my own. So I met up with an old friend of mine, her name is Laura Davis Channon, and uh, she helped me write the book. Um, so we, uh, FaceTime for two and a half years. And because um, she has problems getting out of the house and stuff, she has MS, and, uh, but she's marvelous. And um, so I just read and vomited everything out from my book, from my journals, excuse me. And um, she transcribed everything and it went back and forth for a long time. And we just wanted to make sure that it really did sound like my voice. Um, that was probably a long-winded answer, and I don't even know if I answered your question. You absolutely did. And just exactly. as a side note, the documentary is great. I was able to see it a couple years ago when it was first released on Netflix, and it's really well done. Oh, well, thank you so much. We made it <laughs> on a shoestring budget uh, <laughs> when we uh, went to Kickstarter and asked for money, and you know, we got the money and we we made the film and it's been so well received all over the world it's been on netflix now almost three years since uh, 2017 mm -hmm. and uh this past year uh, it's also an amazon prime video and uh, it just continues to get great reviews and people from all over the world like even now right now in 2020 said oh i'm just seeing your movie well you know what better late than never yeah and perfect timing for the book it's a great follow-up absolutely yes Speaking i mean of your the book, book, the book yeah, came sorry, just quickly the book came out right before we had got hit with this covid 19 right. which is a drag but you know what thank god everybody could order the book i am michael alago on amazon.com absolutely sure. and i like i said i'm not just saying because you're on metal talk tv it really is a great read and if you're a fan of music um, whether heavy metal or otherwise i really recommend it oh, you mentioned in your so book much. one of the stories you tell is about your first concert um, you went to see alice cooper on the billion dollar babies tour at madison square garden personally i am a huge fan of classic alice cooper i think to this day he is still an underrated songwriter um, in, in addition to obviously the influence of theatricality. Um, I'm just wondering, you mentioned in the book this how this concert changed your life. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? In what way was your life changed after this experience? Sure. Um, I was 13 years old and my cousin Carol Ann was going out with a guy named Manny. We affectionately called him Manny the Greek from Astoria. Uh, he wanted to take her to see Alice Cooper. Uh, it was that time of the month for the gal and she didn't want to go. So she said, you know, my, my cousin might want to go. I knew about Alice Cooper because I saw him on late night TV. I don't know if it was on Don Kirshner's In Concert or one of those TV specials that focused on music. And um, he had these pair, this pair of tickets. So um, I went to his um, 
office on Fifth Avenue. Uh, he worked in like a men's clothes, an upper, uh, like a really cool men's clothing store on Fifth Avenue. And it was June 3rd, 1973. And uh, he took me to this concert and I was thrilled. First of all, I'd never been in Madison Square Garden, which holds about 18,000 people. So for a 13 year old, it was just out of this world. And you know, everybody was dressed up and with high right. heels and top hats and you know, Alice Cooper type mascara <laughs> makeup. Yeah. And I'm just like this little petite kid from Brooklyn. And so we had really rotten seats. We had a brown ticket. Those brown seats were like $5 or $6. <laughs> and I thought, even at a young age, I thought this is totally unacceptable. So I said, Manny, <laughs> we have to keep going down as far as we could go. We didn't actually make it to the orchestra, but we got almost as far down as the floor. And we got two seats that just happened to be there. And I was just in awe. So you see Alice Cooper and you hear one of the great, now in retrospect, one of the greatest bands ever come out and do that song, Hello, Hooray. Yes. Um, it's the last night of the tour. And I was in awe. You know, him in these leopard skin, high heeled boots that were really cool, a top hat, a cane. Um, at one point, he brought out that huge boa constrictor. And, you know, another time, as we all know, his head gets cut off by a guillotine. <laughs> I mean, the lights would get great. The theatricality was amazing. And I just thought, oh, my God, I better get my tired butt to more concerts. I don't know if I said it like that, but I was so excited that I just wanted more, you know, and that yeah. more manifested itself because even at a young age, I knew about this newspaper called The Village Voice, which, which came out every week, and it um, focused on music, art, theater, pornography, and politics. I didn't care about politics, but I loved everything else it featured. <laughs> so I saw that a year later, Alice was coming back for the Welcome to My Nightmare tour. I went to that. I saw that Lou Reed was gonna be doing a taping, a, a live show at the Felt Forum, which back then was the small version of Madison Square Garden. I don't even know what the heck it's called these days because so many people have bought it time and time again. Um, so, you know, I saw so many things back then. Todd Rundgren, um, uh, my, my mind is uh, uh, not working right now. So uh, yeah. Once I saw Alice Cooper, I just wanted to go to concerts. And I did, my whole entire life. <laughs> well, that was one of my favorite parts about the book, um, uh -huh. was just hearing, uh, well, rather reading, not hearing, reading about all your experiences of being a teenager in New York City and just jumping from club to club and theater to theater and show to show and seeing all these now legendary artists. It's really phenomenal just the amount of talents that passed through the city or that made New York City its home. Um, sure. Who are some of your favorites you saw live during this time? Is there one or two that just really stand out to you to this day as, as just like, I cannot believe I was there? Mm. Um, well, there were so many concerts because, you know, as a young person, um, I just wanted to go wherever the music was going to take me. So I would take the train from Brooklyn uh, night after night. I don't know why my mom let me go, but I guess it was because uh, I was doing well in school. And uh, I always wound up at, um, 
CBGB on the Bowery, or we would walk up uh, the Bowery to Park Avenue South to 17th Street to Max's Kansas City. Um, so it depends on the year that we're talking about. But in the early days, you know, there was the Cat Club on Wednesday nights. There was so many things going on just because it's New York City, you know? Right. So I was, I was uh, thrilled that in the early days, I, I practically lived at CBGB. Hilly Crystal, the owner, didn't card us young people, but he said, if I see you at liquor, off with your heads for two weeks. So of course we <laughs> hid all the beers in the back alleyway. We chug them down, close the back door and come back in as if nothing happened. So, you know, uh, the dead boys from uh, Youngstown, Ohio, wound up being one of my favorite bands ever. Uh, the energy, they were like the bastard child. Steve Bader's was like the bastard child of Iggy Pop. They were extraordinary. I got to see Eddie and the Hot Rods at CBGB, Patti Smith, the Ramones, uh, Johnny Thunders. I mean, it was so many, it was just so exciting because yeah. every night you could go somewhere. And I, I did. <laughs> I, I, I feel like that is really missing these days. It's just, you know, the way it's structured is just very different. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, you know, back then there were so many clubs, bars, big and small to go to. Uh, here we are in 2020, and never mind that uh, COVID-19 screwed us all up. Right. I don't mean to sound insensitive or anything, but it's ruined my summer. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are so many artists that were going to pass through right. here, and everything had to get canceled with good reason. Uh, you know, this virus is rampant. They, we, there's no cure or anything. Uh, a lot of people are not paying attention that they have to, when they go out into the world, they have to wear their face coverings. Mm. Uh, when I go to the grocery store or to the pharmacy, I wear gloves. I'm always sanitizing my hands and keeping everything clean because, you know, it spreads very easy and there is no end in sight right now, unfortunately. But uh, I'm sorry I went a little off topic there. Uh, so. Right now, or for the last few years, uh, more and more bars and small clubs have just closed down just because they can't afford the rents anymore. And, um, so uh, it's been tough. People don't come through and tour in New York like, like they used to. Yeah. Yes, of course, people come through. You know, there are bars to go to in, in Bushwick and in uh, Williamsburg and Brooklyn, but just things just aren't like they used to be, unfortunately. New York no. has gotten so homogenized yeah. that it's a drag. <laughs> but you know what? I, I still love New York and I, I, I wouldn't leave it for the world. And I was lucky in my 25 years professionally as an A&R executive, I got to travel all over the world and hear and see music. I don't know why just now in my head. Uh, at some point I was in London, it was pouring rain, I was really drunk, and somebody yelled out, Alago! And I'm thinking, oh my God, on top of being drunk, I'm hearing things now. <laughs> so I turned around and it was this concert promoter named John Curd, who I was friendly with. And I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? He said, come inside, I have a concert going on. And I was like, what concert? And he said, the Jake Kennedys. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> sold out. 
all, like 3,000 young punks in a venue. I found a seat up in the balcony and continue to drink beer with all these young people. And I have no idea that why that just popped into my brain just now. Another, another great awesome. concert. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of that, that from reading your book, which is, uh, makes it such a great, fascinating read. You're, so you're able to take your music fandom and your love of seeing live music and turn it into uh, a job and a very long career, ultimately. Um, sure. You start booking at the Ritz mm -hmm. um, in New York City. And um, I, not to give it away on here, because I feel like uh, people should buy the book and read it, but the- Yes, me too. But um, it, it, the Public Image Limited show but it, that's worth the price of the book just for that, if you're not familiar with that story, um, of them playing the Ritz. All the booking of at the Ritz and around New York City, now you get a job as A&R at Electra Records. So I, I guess I'm about 19 years old, and I was taking lunch one day, and I walked down East 11th Street just to go find some lunch. I see a beautiful Art Deco building, and there was a white piece of paper on the door, you know, like an eight by 10 piece of paper that said, um, I think it said video club opening. And I thought, video club opening? That's really interesting because it's now the beginning of 1980. Um, MTV has just reared its head. And so I walk into this building. It's a beautiful 1920s Art Deco building. It's a ballroom. And, um, I just think to myself, well, 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 I think I need a job. So there was a man in the balcony. It was like the Wizard of Oz. His name is Jerry Brandt. I had no idea that he worked um, in the William Morris Agency as a young person. He became an agent and brought the Rolling Stones to the United States. He worked with Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was he was incredible. He was an entrepreneur even at an early age. Jerry. He discovered Carly Simon, the Voices of East Harlem, and I had no idea when he said, "Kid, what do you want? We're not even open yet." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, this is a beautiful building, and you have a video club opening. Can I work here?" And he said, "Well, do you have a resume?" And I said, "Oh." I don't even know, no, I don't have a resume, I go to school. So he just said, come upstairs. So we start talking and he uh, liked that I knew about all forms of music from the great American songbook from like the thirties and forties up to what was happening in New York City, um, the New York City underground scene, the metal scene. And he said, you know what, I like you and I'm gonna give you a job. You're gonna open my mail you're gonna get my lunch and you're gonna answer my phone. And I thought, oh my God, I guess, I, I guess I'm in the music business. <laughs> and that really, at 19 years old, that was the beginning of my life in the music business. Amazing. And I was a sponge and I listened to every single thing Jerry said on the phone. And every day he was talking to booking agents. Right. So about a year in, I learned how to speak to booking agents and start helping him book the entertainment there. Um, and the room holds about 15, 1600. So I was learning how to speak to agents. I was learning how to draw up contracts. And uh, it was really a great, great thrill for me. You know, you asked me about Public Image Limited. Um, 
really quick, uh, it's May of 1981, about a year into my job there. We have an evening with Bow Wow Wow. Um, they were managed by Malcolm McLaren and uh, two nights sold out. He called me up, he said, we're not coming. I said, what do you mean you're not coming? He said, well, Annabella is underage and her mom won't let her come to the States. I said, Malcolm, you booked this gig three months ago and she was still underage. <laughs> you know, like, just put her mom on the plane. We'll pay for it. He said, well, we're not coming. I said, well, send back the deposit. I don't think he ever sent back the deposit. Mm -hmm. I had to think quick. I knew Pill were in town on a uh, press junket for their record, Flowers of Romance. I had no idea, like, what I was going to say to them. I managed to convince them to come down to my office that day. So me and Jerry and our publicist, um, Danny Fields, who was marvelous, friend of mine 40 years now, you know, he discovered Iggy and the Stooges and the MC5 and the Ramones. He was our publicist. So we were sitting there with John Lydon, Jeanette and Keith Levine and, and their videographer, and we have to convince them to do this. We convinced them that to do a gig. They didn't want to come out from behind this 30-foot screen that we, that we had. So uh, after about 18 minutes into the show of tapes of Flowers of Romance, John just starts taunting and teasing the audience. Chairs start flying from the balcony. Uh, back then, they were still serving stuff in like bottles. So right. bottles were flying, everybody. It was, it was mayhem. Well, John and I, kind of loved the whole thing <laughs> but uh you could you know you can read about it in my book i am michael alago breathing music signing metallica beating death and um there's a whole story it's historic i mean it yeah, happened yeah. in 81 and 39 years later people still want to know about that event and it was quite <laughs> the event and what that event produced was a, a, a almost a 40-year friendship with john lyden that's wonderful yes it uh, and again, I'm sorry I was long-winded. No, I, I love the responses. It's it's funny when you think about how like something so beautiful, right? Such a great friendship can come start from such chaos. chaos. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, chaos. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So now you get this job as A and R for Electra Records, and I love in your book when you're like, I. Well, don't know what that, that means. Right. Well, you know, it's, it wasn't just as easy as that. But um, I, was at, I was at the Ritz for three years. I was getting a little yeah. antsy. I knew that there was more out there for me. And I was going out with a young man named Mitchell Krasnow. And I told Mitchell, you know what? I want to do something else. I don't know what that something else is. He said, well, my dad's name is Bob Krasnow. He is leading Warner Brothers. And he's going to revamp Electra. <clears throat> Excuse me. Electra Records was in the crapper back then and Bob was going to revive it. So uh, I said to Jerry, my boss, you know, I want to do more. And I hear that Bob Krasnow is going to revamp Electra. Maybe I can work there. Jerry said, I don't want to lose you, but I know Krasnow and I will tell him to meet with you. And then he hear, Bob Krasnow hears about me from his son. So he's hearing about me from right. two different people. I have an interview with Bob, and it's almost like that same interview I had with Jerry. We talked about music. We talked about all kinds of music. Um, Bob had incredible artwork in the offices at Elektra Records. So we talked about art. And after that hour was over, we shook hands, and he says, I'll get back to you. About two weeks later, he said, you know what? I, Again, I had that same conversation. He said, I like you, and I'm going to give you a job here at Electro Records in our A&R department. 
I, I was on the phone. I said, oh, Bob, that's incredible. Thank you very much. He said, call our um, human resources department. They will set you up. Who would tell me who your lawyer is and we'll get everything going. So I was just so excited that, wait, I'm going to work for a record company. So I called a friend of mine and I said, well, you know, Bob Krasnow is giving me an A&R job in the A give me a, a job in the A&R department, and I have no idea what A&R meant. They laughed in my face, and they said, well, Michael, it means artist and repertoire. In retrospect, here we are, many moons, mm -hmm. many years later, and, uh, you know, A&R is the most important department at a record company. If you do not have great artists, and you do not make great records, off with your head, you're out of a job. Right. So that's how that happened. And, you know, for the next 25 years, um, I was an A&R executive. And it was incredible because I never had a plan B. I always had a plan <laughs> A. And my plan A is I'm going to work in the music business. And with help from a lot of wonderful people and mentors, I got to do that. Well, they say that if you have a plan B, you're not going to make it, right? Because then you have something to fall I don't know on. what they said. All I know about was a plan A. <laughs> well, definitely more than work, though, for you. Um, oh, yes, it did. <laughs> so it, nearly, it nearly killed me, too, but here we are. <laughs> so it's funny in a way that I get to talk to you today because just last week for... Uh, the podcast that I host, it's a Metallica podcast called Metallicast. Um, I was able to do an interview with John Zazula. Uh -huh. And so I feel like I got, you know, the beginning of the Metallica story. And now it sort of continues with you here today. Oh, sure. uh, can you tell me how uh, Metallica ended up on your radar and what your first impression of them was? Um, well, <clears throat> there's a very long version in my book. So, buy it <laughs> and buy it and but i tell this story all the time but it, 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 it it's great you know i was living in brooklyn still it was 1982 my friend uh phil cavano who later would be in monster magnet um we went to see metallica at lamore in brooklyn and we were completely blown away we never heard anything like that before and my idea then was to book them at the ritz because that's where i was still working that right. didn't wind up happening for one reason or another and uh fast forward i'm now working at electra and uh john zazula from megaforce records and i become colleagues very early on and he is fabulous <laughs> i can't even think of another word for john right now but john i love you um uh, 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 he has an independent label and i work for a major um and so i guess they were kind of looking for you know better distribution and uh, so he sent me a box of records i listened to everything but what really stuck out was kill em all by metallica uh he said to me well you know i have this band that i think are going to be huge called raven and um I said, okay. So he asked me if I would do demos with them. I think I gave them $5,000 and they came back with five songs. The songs were fantastic. They are great. We love Raven. Uh, but um, I heard Metallica and that completely blew me away. So 
we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. We're gonna, am I going to just uh, do these demos with Raven? Are we going to distribute Megaforce? It was just all talk, good talk, uh, good conversation, everything up in the air. I had to do some business early on in 83 on the West Coast, and I knew Metallica were playing at the Stone in San Francisco. So I went to see them there. Again, they completely blew me away. These were young people, never mind young people, I was young too. If they were 21, I was 23. Um, uh, these were young people doing something that didn't sound like anything else that was out there. You know, they were pulling together British hard rock, a tradition, American traditional hard rock, right. speed. Uh, I would say even some punk to make Definitely, this yeah. thing called Metallica. And, you know, never mind that when I saw them on stage again, I just thought these people are wildly charismatic on the stage. And when you see them, your eye darted back and forth. And I thought, man, that James Hetfield is a ringleader. He knows how to whip a crowd into a frenzy. And I thought, that's how it's done. Came back home, still was mulling all this stuff over in my head. And um, I don't know, uh, another six months goes by. Uh, now it's the beginning of 1984. Uh, Lars called, I had given, I went backstage and said a quick hello to the guys. They didn't believe that I was an executive for a record company because I certainly <laughs> didn't look like an executive. I probably had a ripped t-shirt and like jeans on and my hair was long, like Farrah Fawcett long. <laughs> and, yeah, please, crazy. And I gave him my business card. So he called me the beginning of 84 because I don't know if you're still interested in us, but we're going to be part of a mega force triple act bill at Roseland on West 52nd Street, August of 1984. I said, I absolutely am. So their days go by, my days go by. I let John know that I'm not, I, I don't want to move forward with Raven, but you know, you could have those demos back. And um, when we had that conversation, John and I, it didn't go so well, but fast forward, uh, as they say, money talks. So um, we, I really wanted them at Electra. I felt that because I worked for a major label, I could take them to where they needed to go. So his business affairs, talked to our business affairs, a deal was struck, and as they say, everybody lived happily ever after. <laughs> but you know, that night was groundbreaking. You know, that night at, um, at Roseland was crazy. And you know what? Uh, I'll read you a little something from the Metallica chapter from my book. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, it was 1984. My friends and I arrived at Roseland and quickly made our way to the bar. I knew I was in for something earth shattering. We ordered a few beers and met up with our chairman, Bob Krasnow, and Mike Bone, vice president of promotion at Electra. I asked them to come and see Metallica with me because I knew I would ultimately need Bob's approval in order to get them signed. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. When Metallica finally hit the stage, the crowd went ballistic. Although Anthrax played a raucous first set and got a terrific response, ultimately the crowd wasn't there for them. They weren't there for Raven either. The crowd was waiting for Metallica to come on and destroy the place. At the start of the show, they smashed into the pounding lead of Phantom Lord with speed and brutal force, followed by the Four Horsemen, then the debut of the song, for whom the bell tolls. The sound was raw, loud, and crushing. The music was more intricate than I had ever heard before. It broke down everything any of us knew about metal. 
There's a lot of fun and fantastic stories in yes. here. And, you know, we talk about my 25 years as an A&R executive. We talk about addiction and recovery. We talked about, I had major, major health issues back in the day. I survived all of that. Uh, I've been clean and sober now 12 years. And so by the end of the book, it's all about gratitude. Gratitude for my life, gratitude that I wake up every day. And um, here we are. Going back to the signing of Metallic for a brief moment. Sure. Um, you know, this, as the story goes, John Zazula initially wants to manage the band. He shops with the major labels. Nobody's interested. He decides to release the first album on his own. So what's right. the change that happens between the lab the majors not being interested and when you come along, are you that change? Are you just the one that sees it when other people perhaps did not? Or was the industry warming up to uh, Metallica and thrash metal and metal in general? Absolutely not. None of those A&R people were as cool as I was. I was a young <laughs> person that was out every single right. night of the week. I knew what was happening in the metal underground. I loved hard rock and heavy metal. I, in Brooklyn, I lived seven blocks from Lemoore. I was there all the time, whether it was to see Metallica, the Plasmatics, Wasp, whoever, I was always there. Um, Nobody gave a crap about Metallica other than John Zazula and those kids <laughs> in the underground metal scene. Right. Hold that. And at some point, you know, there was a confluence of things happening. John and I were talking and uh, he put out um, Kill Em All. And when uh, at, 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 he also at that point put out uh, Ride the Lightning. Um, yes. we, meet, what, we were in negotiations right at that point. And um, we signed them and we also then put out ride the lightning um so so it's 84 the deal is struck um and um metallica now on electra and how extraordinary that is that was a historic signing that really changed the face of hard rock and heavy metal and now it made all those a and r people come out of their right. offices uh, and want to find their own version of Metallica. Now that doesn't happen. You know, there are lots of other great artists out there, but um, you know, I found the best, you know? <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you, Megaforce. And I was there to take them to the next step and beyond. We were a major label with a lot of money and we decided these are the guys. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I always tell people, at some point, this little cassette came across my desk, too, which was there on No Life Till Leather. Yes. So, like I said, it was a confluence of things happening that I just knew they were going to wind up on Electra. When do you think it was the moment where everybody else on Electra was like, all right, we have gold here? <laughs> uh, I don't know if they thought that at first. Now, yeah. you have to remember... Um, there was a marketing department, a publicity department, a promotional sure. department, everything that makes up a record company. Now, a lot of those people, they were not like me going out every night of the week. <laughs> right. um, as cool as Electra Records was, I don't know if it was so cool that people loved Metallica at first. Um, but I presented them to, uh, I presented Metallica in a marketing meeting 
and uh, it was a requirement by our chairman that everyone go see them live or don't come to work tomorrow. It was one of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how Bob talked to everybody. You're going to one of the shows in the tri-state area, you don't go, don't come to work. Everybody went. Everybody, you know, everybody's in the music business for the same reason. We love music. Everybody saw what we had, and uh, Metallica were made a priority. And like you said, it really changed the industry. And you have a chapter in your book about how you became that metal guy at Electra, and you went on to work with several other metal bands like Metal Church, Flossum and Jetsum, and Dawkin. Sure. Um, Dawkin were an established band. There was another A&R person who was working with them at Electra. That person left the label, and they would just hand it over to me. And at that point in time, they knew they wanted to make a live recording. They had put out a bunch of records, either between Warner Brothers in Germany, and then they got signed to Electra in the States. Maybe they already had three or four records out. I'm not quite sure. But they wanted to make a live record, and um, it was my job to get this done. And so we made this record called Beast from the East. And um, yeah, we were recording those shows in Japan. So we recorded the Osaka, Nagoya, and the Tokyo shows. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I went on the road with them a week before because they were opening up for ACDC. And I love Brian Johnson. So I was like, oh my God, I get to see ACDC for like five nights <laughs> before I traveled to Japan with Dokken. So, yeah, and I think that's the name of that record, Beast from the East, right? Yes. That yeah, that's great. right, exactly. Oof, my brain. <laughs> is that all you want to ask me about Dawkin? Pretty much. You, you pretty much answered the questions. I did have a more general question, I guess. Maybe you, maybe you guessed, maybe you sort of answered this already, too, but, um, you know, for people who might not be familiar with how Rec Label works, what A&R does, what's the main difference between, uh, as an A&R man, working with, a new unestablished band like Metallica and a band that's been around the block a few times and you're kind of coming in, um, sure. you know, after um, they're sometimes established. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not. Um, bands, um, when bands, artists, singer-songwriters got handed over to me who were established already, we now know that these people have their own point of view. They right. know what they're doing. But, you know, anytime an artist does go into the studio, whether they're new on the label or established, it is my job to make sure that the material is top notch. You know, you may be established, but you, you come to me and you have 10 songs and they ain't so good. We're not yeah. going to the recording studio. Some people don't like to hear that. But, um, you know, I really did get along with all, mostly all of my artists that I've worked with because I was a young person who really just loved music and I knew how to speak to artists. So my question is, um, you know, during, were you involved um, creatively at all during the Master Puppets era or any time after that with Metallica? Sure, that, good question. Um, Metallica never wanted anybody in the studio with them. They were very <laughs> adamant about that. But mm -hmm. again, I had to say, you know, um, I need to hear the material. You know, yeah. you can't just, you know, here we are spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars right. and uh, you can't just let an artist go in there. So how it was, you know, they were managed now by Q Prime and um, Bob Krasnow said, Michael, let them just make the record. But we do need to hear the material. So Lars was sending me cassettes of uh, 
parts of songs. So I was hearing parts of the Master of Puppets album. And you know, you could hear the development in the songwriting style from the first two albums to this. Yeah. So, you know, I had no choice really. Um, I had to let them do their thing. I trusted that they knew what they were doing. You know, even from the very first album, as raucous and crazy as Kill 'em All is, they were very focused. And okay. then you get, I mean, talk about a change in songwriting from Kill 'em All to Ride the Lightning. Wow. And then you get Master of Puppets. Those first three albums are landmark. They are extraordinary. Definitely. So, um, you know, I let them do their thing. They sent me mixes. I wound up mastering the record uh, in New York City with George Marino, the late, great George Marino, God rest his soul. And um, when I got the, the acetates, the masters, I called Cliff Bernstein, he came to my office, and we played that record on 10. <laughs> if there was a 12, we would have played it on 12. We loved what, we loved what the guys handed over to us. Yeah. You know, like I said, these were young people that even when they were calling them alcoholica back in the day, <laughs> they were focused. Yeah. They, they were determined. They always knew what they wanted to do. They, they did what they wanted, and it was always correct. Was Lars Ulrich your main contact in the yes, band? Yes, I, mo I most, oh God, yeah, motor mouth. I love That does Lars. not surprise me at all, and, no, I, and all. I don't even know him personally. It's okay, <laughs> Lars is fabulous. Um, yeah. In the early days, whenever they were in New York, we would go out to like trash bar and just everywhere <laughs> and literally get trashed. Yeah. Um, I remember one, one night we were leaving trash bar and everyone was like, Where's that? Where's Lars? In the middle of McDougal Street with his pants down, pissing in the middle of the street. I said, darling, you can't do that. Pull those pants up. I said that to him on his It's Electric uh, podcast. I, said, I don't remember that. I said, you're lucky that's the only thing I probably remember from back in the day. Anyway, Lars was my uh, point person. Um, yeah. And because uh, he was the voice. Um, but I, I you know I did interact with a lot of the, the other three band members, but it was really Lars. You know, another band that you signed that I mentioned before, Flotsam and Jetsam. Uh -huh. Obviously, um, great band on their own, but obviously oh, there's yeah. the Jason Newstead connection. Mm -hmm. um, I believe you signed the band after Jason was in Metallica. Because he was on, he was with Flotsam for the first album, and you got him for the second album. Was that correct? It was a, it was a very, um, it was real tight, um, because <laughs> no, 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 because um, I had heard no play. Uh, I had heard uh, Doomsday for the Deceiver. I think they had like a one-off with Brian Slagle at Metal Blade Records. Mm -hmm. They, Jason Newstead, uh, sent me that record with tons of press, and I thought wow, more young people who are fantastic. So I signed them. Um, I didn't get to make a record with Jason. Uh, we made No Place for Disgrace uh, with uh, Bill Matoyer, I believe. And uh, so Bill and the band um, produced the album. And uh, unfortunately in Europe, in Sweden, um, you know, Cliff Burton was killed. Uh, it was awful. I remember getting that phone call on an early morning Saturday, I think it was sort of September 25th, from Cliff Bernstein. 
I, it really was the worst news I ever heard in my whole life. I cried a lot. Uh, everybody, like everybody was just numb. This was their brother. This was their bandmate. This was a, a very smart and talented young man. Uh, what an extraordinary musician gone in a flash. Anyway, so at first the guys, you know, everybody's numb. We don't know what's happening. And um, I don't know, maybe three to six months later, Lars gives me a call and he says, um, we're gonna move forward. We're gonna move forward. We need a bass player. And funny enough, Brian Slagle and I both recommended Jason. We both, I felt that um, he had that same fire and same energy and same look that again, I didn't want to lose him in Flotsam, but uh, they were a great band on their own. And so he went to uh, audition and he got the job and he stayed with them, I guess about 15 years. Yeah. And you know, Jason really is an extraordinary young man. He is, um, an extraordinary musician. Uh, we're still very, very close. To kind of fast forward a bit in your career, you sure. leave Electra, yeah, um, and you go to uh, Geffen Records. Geffen Records, and one of your big signings there is a band called White Zombie. Sure. Um, reading your book, you make a reference to meeting Rob Zombie uh, for the first time, um, and it seems like he was. From the moment you met him, he knew he was going to be a solo star and a filmmaker. Is that true? <laughs> well, it's it's kind of like that. Yeah, I saw them at some little dingy hole in the wall, again, in the East yeah. Village. Um, my friend Daniel Ray, producer, uh, brought me to see them. He was shopping Raging Slab, Circus of Power, and White Zombie. Again, nobody wanted White Zombie. <laughs> Circus of Power and Raging Slab wound up, wound up on RCA Records. I went to see them. Uh, they were playing in a little dank space in the corner in the back in the dark, as I always uh, tell this story. It doesn't change because that's what happened. And they were playing loud. And there was sweat. And there was dreadlocks. And they didn't have one effing song. And I loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the noise. I just related to it. And I felt like we can make something out of this. So they finish playing. There's all this sweat all over the place. And um, I meet them all. And they're the loveliest people that I ever met. And uh, I don't know, at some point, Robert and I are talking. And he says, you know, I want to eventually, I want to make movies. And uh, we're going to be big. And I said, you know what? I think I believe you. So we uh, did some demos. And uh, from those demos, we um, signed a record deal. And um, we had Andy Wallace produce the record because we loved the sound of a previous Slayer record. And we thought that he could be that guy to make the record, and he did. So we made Les Exorcista, Devil Music Volume One. And again, you know, the rest is history. But you know, it took a minute to get there because at some point the record um, stopped selling at like 180,000 units. Yeah. And in my next marketing meeting, everyone's like, uh, Alago, you were telling us it's gonna be a million <laughs> seller. Yeah. So again, 
a confluence of things happened. Beavis and Butthead came into our lives. <laughs> and um, that's all I'm going to tell you. As we know from there, yes. they became huge. Yeah. And there's a really fun story in my book, not only because it involves Beavis and Butthead, it involves ba famed filmmaker Russ Meyer, who made Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. We also called Vincent Price at some point to ask if he would do a speaking voice on there. So it's really, there's a really great chapter in the book on the making of and who all the characters were that were involved <laughs> in the making of this, or not the characters who weren't involved in the making of yeah. this record. I'd like to think that in 2020, uh, the music industry and the heavy metal scene is pretty inclusive for the most part. Um, but maybe not so much, I'm not sure, in the 1980s when you were signing Metallica and Metal Church. I'm curious as, you know, it, metal is a genre that often gets associated with you know white straight male uh dominated as a puerto rican as a gay man did, or, did Listen, you have I a lot of prejudice I, or you know it's no. a funny thing. people ask me that all the time i really didn't feel it you know here i was a young gay puerto rican kid from brooklyn and i'm in the metal scene but you know i was never in the closet I never cared what you thought about me. <laughs> yeah. You're either gonna like me or you're not gonna like me. Mm. And you know, it's all about the music anyway. Um, so I, you know, to be honest, I never really felt, I mean, people may have talked about me behind my back, but uh, that's life, you know? I always just felt, you know, it, 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 people are either gonna like you or they're not gonna like you, whoever you are. And I was determined to have people like me. And if they didn't, they could F off. So, um, <laughs> you know, here we are in 2020. I mean, you know, of course, I think people have grown up and progressed mm -hmm. and, um, and are, you know, are inclusive. And again, if you're not, no problem here with me. The one takeaway I had, um, not the one takeaway, but one of the takeaways I had from uh, reading your book was um, just your, how you really just do not give an F. And I, and I greatly admire that. And I say that um, not like you don't care, but I say that in a way where, you know, whether it was, you know, meeting a, a favorite musician backstage sure. or how you, uh, you know, seem to, present yourself and your mm -hmm. in your confidence is just really admirable oh um, thank you so much and, but i guess uh, we could also say in that i don't give an f all what all that is is bravado and i don't yeah. know how i had the bravado at an early age i don't know how i had that confidence at an early age but i did and going along with that plan a that bravado and confidence just worked in my favor for 25 mm. years. And you know, in the movie that they made about me that's on Netflix called Who the F Is That Guy? Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. And my <laughs> newly released memoir, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Feeding Death. I always tell the truth. Mm. When you tell the truth, people respond to that. And when you tell, this tr when you tell the truth, there's always some kind of story that goes along with the truth.
So right. I just felt that um, I was always that person. Like I said, I was always confident about who I was and am today. And um, I knew when I was uh, getting this film made uh, and when I was writing this book that just tell the truth. People respond to that so beautifully. And, um, and when you tell the truth, people then have more questions for you. And, and, and if my truth is a source of inspiration and uh, for other people, well, then that's what I'm here for. I'm here to be kind. I'm here to service and help others. You know, when people say, do you give advice? I don't give advice. I just tell you what worked and works for me. And if that can help you in your life, right on. I think that is a beautiful way to conclude this. Um, Michael, thank you so much for coming on Mail Talk TV. You've been so gracious with your time. Uh, the book, I Am Michael Lago, Breathing Music, Sign of Metallica, Beating Death, Yay! is available now. And, and, and uh, again, Amazon.com. Amazon I yeah. highly recommend it. It thank is you. a fantastic read. I myself am about halfway through it, and I'm looking right. forward to finishing it up as soon as my daughter gives me time to. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> well, good luck with your new new eight-month-old daughter. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael, oh, for your thank time. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for having me. I hope you enjoyed it. I honestly had a blast talking to Michael. He is so nice, was so gracious with his time, and as you just heard, has so many amazing stories. This interview does not even scratch the surface for the stories that he has. He has had such an interesting life and has done so much in the world of music. You have to read his book, I Am Michael Lago. Breathe the music, signing Metallica, beating death. Use the link in the episode description. Go to Amazon, purchase it, read it. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. I also want to make sure I thank MetalTalk.net one more time for allowing me to interview Michael Lago. He was a dream guest of mine here on Metallicast. And if you would want to watch the video, please check out the link in the episode description for Metal Talk TV. Follow Metallicast on social media at Metallicast on Facebook, the Twitter machine, and Instagram. Please download, subscribe, leave a positive review for Metallicast. You can find us, well, you already found us, but you can find us also on Apple, Google, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, including our home site, fans.experts.com. So please subscribe and join the Metallicast Money Show! Till next time, ladies and gentlemen, middle up your ass. Yeah! That's not experts.